As you uh, turn to Micah chapter 4, that's where we'll be, I'll tell you a story about two Mondays ago, the Monday before man camp, I went into the clinic to see about some pain in my body that really had no other symptoms to go with it. And uh, so they set me up for an ultrasound eventually for that Wednesday. But that Monday evening, well into Tuesday, this is very telling of your pastor, all it took was some extensive research on the internet of my symptoms, and suddenly I wasn't a pastor, I was a diagnostician. And I decided that uh, the symptoms, and statistically who I was, was pointing towards cancer. And I probably said I wasn't 100% convinced it was cancer, but I had enough worry to really wonder, to really think that my life was about to drastically change. Well, they don't think I have cancer. And the pain seems to be less, but in those moments, I really had a greater appreciation, a greater awareness, a greater sympathy for people who are struggling with very significant health problems. Uh, when something like that comes, life definitely doesn't feel the same. A person's perspective changes. A person's mortality comes into focus. And there's this surreal weight, this surreal reality in the form of worry and fright that settles in. Last weekend at Mancamp, there were two pastors from the yearly meeting. One was Chris Henderleiter of Melba Friends. The other was Dan Bannum. He's been here before. He pastors a church in Portland, Oregon called the City's Edge. And they were leading the music, and in one of the services, they opened up. Um, Chris was diagnosed with MS a few years back. And uh, he also said about his son who had uh, severe autism. And Dan Bannon, we prayed for Dan. His sabbatical, he was here during a sabbatical, and then it was cut tragically short last autumn when he was hit by a vehicle as he was riding his bike. And it seemed to have gotten darker before it got better. And Dan said he had those moments. Perhaps some of you have had those moments in different times or places or occasions, and that was Dan was asking God, is this it? Am I going to die? <laughs> Dan has a son a little bit um, in his really early 20s now, I believe, and he said, he was, I would like to see my son get married, God, at least. And there are some things he'd like to do before he would pass on, and he seems to be mending now. Some of you can, can probably identify in your own ways. When suffering and fright come, and and I'm in a long, dark tunnel I don't want to be in. And, and things like that just come over you and you wonder, where's the escape route? <laughs> this can't be happening. Things like that. And communally, as the church, uppercase C, worldwide, we might sense that to be so as well, that the nation seems to be getting darker, maybe more susceptible to accepting blatant sin is okay to do societally, whether it be concerning the lack of purity around the marriage and everything from cohabitation, premarital sex, and homosexuality, and divorce, and the like. And it could be the pro-infanticide and the pro-abortion that's happening, and the overt violent persecution worldwide, and the covert social persecution here in the States. Two weeks ago, we ended really on a triumphant picture of the church in Micah. 
trekking out into the world, T-R-E-K, that, that God's kingdom, his people, were to be a people of teaching, a people of reconciliation, a people of effective kingdom of peace, and that uh, there was a definite king. And the, it's a kingdom on the offense, a kingdom victorious, a kingdom that we're now in. But even amid what we know to be true, that, that God is victorious, and that his kingdom will ultimately be the last one standing and triumphant, we might be susceptible to those worries and those woes. And that's what Micah's audience is doing here in Micah chapter 4, verse 9. If you want to stand with me and read through 5-3, I invite you, invite you to if you're able to. Micah 4, 9, and we're going to read through 5-3. Micah asks, Now why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished, so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? Rise and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued, and there the Lord will redeem you from the power of your enemies. Many nations have now assembled against you, and they say, Let her be defiled, and let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan, that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze, so you can crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder to the Lord for destruction and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. Now, daughter, who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with the rod. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. Therefore he will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. Let's pray. Father, you've given us your word, all of it, for us to come to and to learn and know and love you more and love others more. Sometimes we look at Old Testament prophets and scratch our heads. But you've given us the Spirit to teach us. You've given us the Spirit to interpret each and everything. So that we might feast on you and drink from your living water. So we pray that that is what would take place today, that each and every person with all their griefs and sorrows would come and, and ask you, can you speak to this? No matter what our condition is, we trust that you can speak to it. But you have to be the one speaking, so I pray that you would move me out of the way and say what it is that you desire. Father, we're listening and we're longing to hear your voice. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe you noticed that there is a symbol, there is an image that weaves these verses together. And that is the idea of birth. Jesus points out the beautiful reality in John 16, 21. He says, when a, a woman is in labor, she has pain because her time has come. But when she has given birth to a child, she no longer remembers the suffering because of the joy that a person has been born into the world. 
The pain of childbirth is one of the most interesting and upside-down pains a woman might feel. <laughs> because at the, the same time, both an unwanted and a wanted thing is happening. <laughs> it's unwanted because of the pain. <laughs> but it's wanted because we know what comes at the end. Most people want a child. And I know in this day and age, in the political landscape, we see that that apparently isn't the case. But in a perfect world... God's people should always want children and are willing to experience the pain together. Likewise, the most horrific pain ever experienced by anyone in the world, in my mind, is the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus looked forward to that barbarous, grotesque, murderous act, and Hebrews 12 said that it was for the joy that lay before him. He endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. Jesus was able to endure the cross ultimately because for him it was a joy that was set before him because of what the ends would bring. The southern kingdom of Judah that Micah is prophesying to or suffering. First, again, let us hear the first verse and a half we're looking at in Micah chapter 4, verse 9. Now why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counselor perished so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? There's that symbol. Rise and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. For a little review and background... Micah is, is writing this around the fall of the northern kingdom to the Assyrians. That happened in 722 B.C. And Micah is writing around that time. And back around the end of January, as we were in Micah, we were able to tie in some events happening in Micah's lifetime that are recorded in 2 Kings 19 or 2 Chronicles 32 and that is when King Sennacherib of the Assyrians wiped out the northern kingdom, he really went on this brutal campaign through the southern kingdom, and in fact made it to Jerusalem and sieged it. So that was in 701 B.C. And these accounts tell us that Jerusalem was surrounded by Assyria, and propaganda was being broadcast in Jerusalem. Sennacherib sent messengers to the king of Judah at the time, Hezekiah, so tells us 2 Kings 19, uh, 10 and 11, Say this to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Don't let your God, whom you trust, deceive you to, by promising that Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Look, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries that completely destroyed them. Will you be rescued? Did the gods of the nations that my predecessors destroyed rescue them? So some wonder if even here in Micah 4, this might be when Micah is writing. Because the first questions, the anguish of his hearers, Now why are you shouting loudly? Is there no king with you? Has your counsel or parents so that anguish grips you like a woman in labor? It could be a reference that here is Assyria coming in to Judah. And Micah asks, Is it that you have no king? Has your counselor perished? And I believe Micah is being sarcastic here. He's not asking about Judah's monarch, Hezekiah. I believe he's asking about their king of kings. It's supposed to be a question of conviction. 
It should bring to the mind for those in Judah, why do we feel so distant? Where is God? And in their sinning, in their cultic worship, and their abuse of each other, they've forgotten God. Isaiah asks in his memorable 40th chapter, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not considered the foundations of the earth? God is enthroned above the circle of the earth. Its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like thin cloth and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He reduces princes to nothing and makes judgment of the earth irrational. So we sense the power and majesty here and the reverence and the fear it should inspire in us. But then at the end of chapter 40 in Isaiah, we then hear, Do you not know? Have you not heard? Yahweh is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never grows faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the weary and strengthens the powerless. Youths may faint and grow weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. The reality of God within his people should bring reverence and fear as well as strength and comfort. When God enters into an equation, no matter what we are suffering, it should bring hope. Isaiah is asking a valid question. Mike is asking a valid question here. Has God gotten off of his throne? <laughs> is the closed sign hanging over his office? Have we suddenly switched universes where God is no longer? When God enters into our equation, no matter what we are suffering... It should bring hope. It doesn't remove the consequences, nor does it alter reality. It still means suffering may take place, but a baby's on the way. There may still be something to endure, but it can become a joy that is set before us. Micah makes the clearest and most blatant prophecy in verse 10. He says, Rise and cry out, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor. There's the symbol again. For now you will leave the city and camp in the open fields. You will go to Babylon. Micah says at the beginning of his book, again, that his ministry was near the fall of the north kingdom in 722 B.C. The southern kingdom wasn't taken captive by Babylon until the 580s B.C. Micah is prophesying events that would happen more than a century later, and he's naming names. <laughs> Babylon was heard of in his time. It was a minor power compared to the superpower of Assyria. In fact, King Hezekiah, the king that was reigning when Sennacherib came to the gates of Jerusalem, had some interesting dealings with Babylon, recorded for us in 2 Kings 20, verses 12 through 19. So, so Hezekiah had gotten gravely ill. And so the son of Babylon's king comes and gives a message of good tidings and brings some good gifts to Hezekiah. Hezekiah then takes the time to show the Babylonian king's son the entire kingdom and the palace and the treasuries and all of it, every single thing. And once the prophet Isaiah hears about it and he's talking to Hezekiah, it's almost as if Isaiah is prophetically speaking of the irony. He's basically says, interesting that you would show this Babylonian all your kingdom and, and your treasuries because there's a day in the future when Babylon's going to cart off this entire kingdom. 
and the highest and the mightiest of Judah will be eunuchs of Babylon's palace. And Hezekiah kind of responds in my own butcher translation, well, at least it's not me. <laughs> so Isaiah and Micah are a century or so before it's happening, warning of Babylonian exile. Whether it's fearing the Assyrians at the gate, or Babylonian exile, Micah gives good news. Good news that, will, that God will rescue his people. He says, picking it up in the middle of verse 10 and finishing out chapter 4 of, of Micah, There, that is in Babylon, you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the power of your enemies. Many nations have now assembled against you, and they say, Let her be defiled. Let us feast our eyes on Zion. But they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, daughter Zion, for I will make your horns iron and your hooves bronze, so you can crush many peoples. Then you will set apart their plunder to the Lord for destruction and their wealth for the Lord of all the earth. Can you imagine hearing Micah for the first time? Being his first audience, Assyria is the big superpower to be feared, not Babylon. Beyond Assyria, Micah warns that Judah will be taken captive by Babylon and forced into exile. This is like for us today. I don't know, instead of Middle Eastern Islamic terrorists, Canada is going to evade us. And they're going to deport us to the northern wastelands. But don't worry, God will take care of us. And we're like, Canada, that's north, right? Like that's the idea of Babylon, and it's so foreign. So the real threat for Assyria, or the real threat was not Assyria for Judah, it was Babylon. And the real threat was not Rome for Jesus' day, it was sin and the power of evil. Friends, the point is that you and I always have a greater enemy than what we can see, and we need to know that we've been redeemed from that enemy. It is in Babylon, I love that, it's in Babylon when you're conquered and it doesn't look good and you've been taken captive and you don't have a homeland. It's in Babylon, Micah says, that the Lord will redeem them from the power of their enemies. It's right in the middle of your struggle, right in the middle of your problems. And I love how God does it. You see what Micah says here. He says the nations are now assembled against you. And some believe that this is a reference to Assyria's siege of Jerusalem because Assyria's army was composed of mercenaries of the many nations that they had conquered. But some might see, say also now they're being seized now by Assyria. They're going to be warned about Babylon in the future. It seems Judah is always on the brink of being taken captive because after Babylon, Persia will come through. And after Persia, then Greece. And after Greece, then Rome. And so the nations are assembled against Judah, but they do not know the Lord's intentions or understand his plan that he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. My translation is the joke's on you. God has a plan in Judah's suffering, in their conquest. God can use what seems to be the most immense of evil. For the greatest good. I love this picture in the fourth chapter of Acts. P- 
Peter and the disciples are being seen, and, and rightly so, by the Sanhedrin, as what I would call really the hydra of Jesus. In Greek mythology, hydra was a monster where if you chop off the head, two more take its place. Only with Jesus, with Jesus gone, the Holy Spirit is rapidly growing, the body of believers taking its place. So instead of one Jesus, many are proclaiming his name, many are doing healings in his name. And so it's eating up. And Peter and John are arrested, beaten, and told not to preach in the name of Jesus. And so they listen really well, so they turn around and pray for more boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. Listen to what the believers pray in Acts 4, 25-30. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles, some translations say, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers assembled together against the Lord and against his Messiah. For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats, and grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness while you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. The believers see that in fact nations gathered at the doorstep of Jesus. They were assembled against him. And they were there for many purposes in their minds, but for one purpose in the hands of God. The Jews didn't like Jesus taking their power. The Romans didn't like Jesus indirectly inciting revolt because of how the Jews responded to him. And so they're all there. They all got their reasons. But the believers say that they were there to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Friends, God has a plan and God has a purpose no matter what you're going through. There is no such thing in God's economy as useless suffering. There is joy and the baby at the end of every endurance and every labor. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, says Paul, are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Furthermore, down in the 8th chapter of Romans, verse 21, creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been growing together with labor pains, there's that symbol, until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies, now in this hope we were saved. Yet hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. In the same way, the Spirit also joins to help in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should. Have you been there? <laughs> but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with unspoken groanings. And he who searches the hearts knows the Spirit's mindset, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. God gives purpose to our sufferings, and no suffering is useless. And whenever 
God is with us when we suffer. He gives us power and victory. The symbols back here in verse 13 of Micah 4 are of the toughest metal of warfare and agriculture, iron and bronze. And horns are a symbol in the Bible of strength, sometimes oppressive strength. And so putting iron onto these horns is giving it a quality of assured victory and invincibility because it will be done by God. And thus glory will be given to God. That's what Micah says at the end of verse 13. Then you will set apart your plunder to the Lord for destruction and your wealth to the Lord for all the earth. It's interesting though, this description of Israel with iron horns and bronze hooks. The resurrected Jesus gives the message of revelation to the Apostle John. And John records Jesus looking like the following. One like the Son of Man, dressed in a long robe and with a gold sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow, his eyes like a fiery flame. His foot, his feet were like fine bronze, as if it was fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at midday. Jesus is the victor for daughter Zion. Jesus is the Redeemer. He is the one who will gather the nations as sheaves on the threshing floor. John the Baptist says at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, in Luke chapter 3, verses 16 through 17, One is coming who is more powerful than I. I am not worthy to untie the strap of the sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing shovel is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn up with a fire that never goes out. So, we group time. We talk about, generally speaking, where we've been. God's people are threatened into exile. They're going to be sent into exile. Mike is asking, why do you say God's not here? And more so than a serious threat, Babylon's going to be the one to take them into exile. Secondly, they will be rescued by God. And thirdly, it will be at the right time, so it tells us in Micah 5, 1 through 3. Now, daughter, who is under attack, you splash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with the rod. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity and from eternity. Therefore he will abandon them until the time when she who was in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. A quick translation note, if any of you are reading just about any other translation besides the Holman Christian Standard Bible, you may note that verse 1 says, as the ESV puts it, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. Believe it or not, my sources tell me that the words slash yourself in grief or muster your truth are the same verb in Hebrew and can be translated as either phrase. So again, my sources tell me. To slash oneself was a symbol of mourning, especially forbidden, expressly forbidden by God in Deuteronomy 17 verse 1. So if we had to make a choice here, I'd seem to think that God is likely telling Zion to gather their troops. Because I don't think an out and out breaking a commandment of God would be a direct command from God. He could be telling them symbolically that they're about to mourn. 
But as we move on to the, the final part of Micah 5.1, we, we see that they are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. Striking the cheek is an insult. And so the judge of Israel, in this case with Babylon coming in, could be the king Zedekiah. Now, from the time of Babylon conquering Judah to the time of Jesus is about almost 600 years. Babylon came in again in the 580s. So this quick statement from verse 1 to verse 2 seems to have a lot of time in between them. Micah says, and you probably hear it at Christmas time if you read Matthew 2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity, from eternity. I see four things that we can learn in this verse. Probably more, but I just see four. Firstly, in Bethlehem is a small village of nobodies. Secondly, one who is ruler over Israel is coming. Thirdly, the ruler is in the likes of David. And that takes a little explaining. Micah uses very familiar language that the ruler over Israel is for me, says God. The book of Samuel, we're told that Saul was firstly the people's choice for a king. God tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 8, 22, kind of nonchalantly, listen to them, the Lord told Samuel, appoint a king for them. And then Saul is king, and Saul rather quickly fails as king, and when it comes to David, though, we kind of hear a change of language in 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him? from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You see the difference in that. Appoint them a king, as opposed to I provided for myself a king. I made a better decision than they wanted. So when God says through Micah, from that one from Bethlehem, one who is ruler over Israel coming, it is for me, he's saying that this is another David. This is not like all the Sauls who are leading Israel and Judah, steering people into cult worship and going into other nations. But from Bethlehem, a ruler for me is coming. And the fourth thing we learn is that his origins is from antiquity, from eternity. And that too was promised to David. In Second Samuel 7, God covenants with David and he says things like, when your time has come and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and kingdom will endear before me forever and your throne will be established forever. So Jesus is coming from Bethlehem. He's a ruler for Israel. He is a king for God, and he is a king who is God, as Jesus said he was over and over. But he's coming at the right time. He's coming, says Micah, therefore he will abandon them until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. God will abandon them. Who? Israel. Because Babylon's still coming. <laughs> Persia is still coming. And then Greece and then Rome. But there will be a time when she who is in labor has given birth. 
Israel is pregnant, waiting for a king. And when the fullness of time had come, says Paul, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, born under Israel, born under this covenant. Israel is pregnant with Jesus, and there is pain in waiting for the right ruler. There is pain in waiting for the Messiah, but finally Jesus is born, and Israel gives birth, and it's the Messiah. And then it says, then the rest of his brothers will return to the people of Israel. That is, Jesus will be the first fruit of the remnant of Israel, and the holy remnant of Israel will fall in line after him. He will be joined by his brothers. We covered a lot of ground. Generally speaking, the flow is like this. God's people were threatened into exile, right? We started with Micah asking, Why are you acting like God's not around here? Why are you anguished like a woman in labor? But since you're in anguish, do it well. This is what Micah says. He says, Rise and cry out like a woman in labor, because they will go into exile. Babylon's going to conquer them. Secondly, we heard Micah give hope that God was coming to the rescue. Micah said, many nations are at your doorstep. Assyria, uh, Babylon, Persia, and then Greece and Rome. But God's coming to the rescue in a very unique way. And that he's going to use all the evil that's being mounted on top of Israel. And he's going to use it to rescue them. He's going to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place. And that is, finally, he's going to reveal himself in the flesh at the right time through Jesus. The Messiah for the world. I've been thinking about this this week, obviously, since I'm writing it. (laughs) And I wonder if Satan thought this way. I think Satan's pretty stupid, and I like to pick on him a little bit. So I wonder if he thought, oh, God's people Israel, I hate them. I'm going to bring nation after nation, people after people, and bombard that tiny, little, stupid, insignificant nation, and I'm going to pound them into the dust. And then God shows up in the flesh, while Israel's under its most intense enemy yet, Rome. And so Satan's like, oh, Jesus, I hate Jesus. It's just too bad that he came here while Rome's here, because they like to crucify people. So I'm going to crucify that Jesus, and that'll show God, and then God uses that to save the world. Satan just wanted to pick on Israel. God used that to save the world. So, friends, I have to ask, what is my problem? What is your problem? What's your situation? And I want you to dream big. Dream really big. I'm not talking about your busted knee. Oh, it hurts. I'm not talking about all the bills. It's too much money to pay out, not enough coming in. I'm talking bigger. What if all your problems... What if all the problems building on each other, that relationship that's gone sour and maybe nobody knows and you don't know what to do, plus the health issues that you have, plus the bills, plus the sin that you've yet to overcome, plus the distance you feel with God, plus the nation that you live in that seems to be going to hell in a handbasket, plus the churches that are condoning sin and you feel powerless to speak out, and plus and plus... What if all these things, plus the other things that my little three-pound brain hadn't thought of when you're thinking of, what if all the situations I named heaped on top of each other like a burning pile of problems? What if God can take that? What if God can use that 
I'm not bringing much inviting stuff to the table, God. I got a pile of sin here. I got a pile of problems there. And that's been stinking up the place for years on end. And the doc can't figure that one out. I don't even know what that is. I don't know when that was dragged in. And what if we bring it all to the table, every last stinking bit? You want it all, God? You know, I have a big closet that I haven't opened in a while as well. And like the nations gathered at the door of Israel, where Jesus was born, what if we bring all of our problems from the weight of the world to our little stub toe to the doorstep of the cross? And God redeems that. What if God is still redeeming today? What if we've never trusted him enough with the big things? What if we think that we have some sort of control over those big problems and if we just worry long enough and we're silent enough, what if God uses our suffering for the greater good? What if we don't need to suffer in total grief and despair, but our suffering can be like that of a woman in labor? There will be an end to our suffering. And at that end, in the hands of Almighty God, our Redeemer, joy will come. Joy will be birthed. All of our suffering has purpose. All of our grief and our pain will produce the fruits of holiness and righteousness forged in our suffering and molded and used by our Redeemer. Every last bit, every ounce of problems, every weight that we hold, every pain, every grief, every sorrow, every sin that threatens us, God can and will use. And His redeeming it will far outdo the evil, the sadness, and the pain. If it's brought to God, He will use it for good a hundredfold. Satan, the world, and our own flesh has nothing over God's power to redeem. Amen? Let's pray. Father, your word says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Many of us, it seems lately, we've been weeping a lot. Maybe it's the fault of some to not be as crying as they should be. Maybe it's the fault of ourselves to not seeking the help we need. But Father, I feel your spirit here today saying, I will redeem it. That's what I do. That's what I went to school for. Father, you created redemption. The person and work of Jesus is redemption. And what you do with everything we have is redeemed. So, Father, we come to you today, and some of it was shared in our prayer time. We try to keep a nice, straight face when we share about our problems, but inside they've been bothering us, toying with us. Father, we want to give them to you today and say, I trust that you are a Redeemer, and we know that that doesn't alter reality. We know we got work to do. We know there are things to say, people to talk to. But, Father, it brings us such great hope that there is nothing that can happen in the world that you cannot take use, take and use for your good purposes. And that you will redeem them, and that they will bring joy and fruit a hundredfold, more than the sort of pain that brought. That doesn't minimize the pain, but it maximizes our hope of you. 
We thank you for your hope. We thank you for the joy you give us. We thank you that this is what you do for all those who are called according to your purpose. We thank you for the promise of the baby and the end of our suffering. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we ask and we pray that this truth will so influence our lives that we will have reasons to smile. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. <coughs>